Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Uh, as always, I prefer you email them to me if you can. Uh, that's the easiest way for me to get them into my, my question queue. I wanted to thank, uh, go out of my way to thank the YouTube membership supporters. If you see below this video on YouTube, a little join button. This is not join Chris Shelton's cult, uh, but it is join Chris Shelton's membership, uh, which is something that helps, you know, give a little bit back to the channel for what you guys get from it. And I hope you will consider doing that. So many of you have. I want to thank all of you. And I also want to thank, of course, my longtime hardcore uh, and all of my Patreon supporters, you guys are awesome and very, very much appreciated. You are what is keeping all of this going. Uh, so means a lot to me. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, first plug the podcast. Uh, I have been a little surprised at, um, you know, I always kind of keep track of the numbers on my videos, especially on the first day. Is this going to be something people want to see? Is this not? And um, and I did an interview on my podcast this week with Dr. Yanya Lalich, one of the thought leaders, one of the leaders in the anti-cult field and uh, and movement and, and effort. Uh, she is somebody very much worth listening to, and we had a really wonderful talk. It was one of the few interviews I've ever done where I actually wrote down all my questions first because I had so many, and I wanted to really make sure that I, uh, you know, gave her good questions because she's not somebody's time I wanted to waste. Not that I want to waste anybody's time, but you know what I mean. Um, so I hope you guys will check out that podcast. And uh, and we had a fun show on Friday night uh, considering the meaning of life, but also how that is, uh, of course, utilized or taken advantage of by other more nefarious uh, actors in the world, uh, characters out there you might meet, who will be more than happy to give you a meaning for your life if you are having trouble finding one. And maybe that's not always, uh, in fact, that's never a good idea. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions. Steph CLO. As we know, during the Masterson trial, there must have been numerous shredding parties at Scientology headquarters and lawyer offices. What are your thoughts on all the recordings of PC sessions? Do you think Miscavige would ever go all Keith Raniere and start recording meetings and everything for posterity? Would they be deleting lawyer videos, etc.? Letters and emails and files are important, but videos can be serious smoking guns too. Just something I thought was interesting, all the digital medias. Okay, thank you for asking about this. And I thought it might be an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more broadly about what uh, the little tiny bit that I know about David Miscavige and how he operates. Uh, something y'all, I don't know that it's ever really been noticed or talked about on any channel, but David Miscavige, when he goes around within the world of Scientology and is doing inspections or um, visits or you know, meeting with people, all of it is recorded. All of it. There are people, his entourage, who walk around with him, have recorders and notepads, and they keep up with everything he says. It's all taken down. 
Um, this is, there are binders of uh, dispatch communications, uh, emails, you could say, or letters back and forth with him, giving directives and orders to people, captains of organizations, um, the personnel at Bridge Publications. I saw these binders of, of, of directions just for Bridge Publications or just for the American St. Hill organization or whoever. These conversations back and forth were, uh, were in writing. Um, but when they weren't, when he was just walking around doing his thing, they were recorded. Uh, I saw it. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons for this is because he would often run, walk around doing his inspections and issuing orders to whoever he wanted to, telling him what to do, totally bypassing the entire Scientology command structure in the process, uh, which is something Hubbard said, you know, just kind of mildly might have mentioned once or twice, not really a good idea. Uh, Mr. Gavage doesn't care, right? If he's talking to somebody and he wants them to do something, he's going to tell them what to do. And those are recorded and then followed up in writing, right? People will then, I mean, I had a conversation with him one time um, from my job at my desk and he was walking around in the management area and he stopped, asked me a couple questions and then, and then walked on his way. And he had given me an order as a suggestion and within 10 minutes, I had people come into my desk, other people, you know, other staff in my organization that had gone all the way down there at this point to follow up on and, and carry out his orders. So it's not like there's even a lot of, you know, time entered into this. But that's just one aspect of, of Miscavige and how he is recorded for posterity. And when you asked about that, I thought, well, yeah, that's already being done and has been being done for many, many years. Um, that's all recorded somewhere. You know, somebody's got all that. And the Internet age and the computer age were actually a boon for Scientology in terms of its surveillance uh, culture and it's reporting snitch culture uh, because all of those files and all that information can now be digitized and uh, you know and, and stored in bits and bytes and not in it doesn't have to all be stored in paper in warehouses which is how things were when Hubbard was around and through all the early years so now they can put on a thumb drive you know a, a bunch of sessions uh, recorded for miscavige or they can have a hard drive that has you know that's encrypted that could have a ton of information on it all of the scientology policies issues directives that all is computerized that's all uh digital it's called source information retrieval or sir and that's a software system that exists in scientology to be able to look up any policy anywhere that hubbard ever wrote um all the issues of any kind are all in there and um and it's not a filtered thing where people at the lower levels have it but they've filtered out the confidential stuff they're not supposed to have it's kind of an all-or-nothing system is how I was told about it uh, by the people who programmed it in INCOM, the, the computer division in Scientology. Anyway, point is that not everybody has access to all that information. Um, it's an upper-upper-level management kind of thing. Um, but it exists. And so anything that could be digitized is something Miscavige might have access to or OSA might have access to and probably does. And it probably saves them uh, all kinds of time and money in storage purposes uh, to be able to have all that because then they can, they, they can do a shred party 
and get rid of all the paper, or they can do a shred party and erase videos and incriminating evidence, but keep backup copies at some confidential location buried in a box somewhere that only Miscavige has the keys to or something like that. Easy, easy for them to do now. Uh, where it wasn't always that way. Uh, if we remember those old stories about the file cabinets of the OT, the supposedly the OT materials uh, that L. Ron Hubbard had that passed to Pat Broker, who then ran off with it. And then Marty Rathbun and others went and raided his place and took those file cabinets thinking that they were taking back the OT levels. And well, no, that's not really what was in there. Um, so that's kind of how things used to be in Scientology is all these paper files and file cabinets, you know, running around, uh, not so much now, uh, in the digital age. So anyway, that's all I really wanted to, to comment on with that. I think that, um, you know, that there's too much power in that information. And one of the primary reasons that David Miscavige has power, holds power, can keep power is because of uh, that information uh, that he has access to and the potential blackmail uh, possibilities of that are one thing. But of course, you know, information or influence peddling is a thing. You know, when you know things about John Travolta, Tom Cruise, other major Scientology celebrities or principal figures who are not just entertainment figures, but also in other industries, when you know everything about them or have access to their deepest, darkest secrets, that gives you, you know, just by implication, without even having to voice a threat or make a big deal about it, you already have power uh, that, that, you know, those people whose secrets they want kept secret, you know, they kind of know about that. Uh, So that's, that's kind of a thing. So Miscavige is not going to just, you know, willy nilly erase stuff or get rid of stuff or shred it and not keep some of that power you know if you kind of think about that balancing act that he has to do uh it you know with that so there you go gus just started viewing your channel i work with a firm that is using the hubbard management system hms and many of my colleagues are scientologists i am not nor do i care to be but i believe in the purposes of the organization Given your experience, am I going to be a target of being recruited to Scientology? Is using this HMS a negative issue in your mind, and is it, quote, veiled Scientology doctrine? All right, Gus, thanks for asking me about this. And uh, yes, you absolutely are eventually going to be a target of or Scientology recruitment if you work at a company run by Scientologists using Hubbard's management system, unless they show a great deal of restraint and are the kind of Scientologists who actually have their head on straight in regards to not mixing religion and work uh, or employment, because there have been lawsuits over this issue uh, where Scientology managers, Scientologists who are managers of companies, have directed their employees to go down to the local church of Scientology or otherwise ordered them to do Scientology classes um, which is a violation of, you know, of their rights as employees. You can't order somebody to go p- take part in uh, religious education or practice. Uh, that's just not a line you get to cross as an employer. Employers already have way too much power when it comes to manipulating and influencing their people. And, um, and so that just crosses lines that, you know, that, that are actually going to uh, get you in trouble in civil court. Um, 
However, uh, there are plenty of Scientology managers out there or Scientology companies, companies that use Hubbard's management system, meaning they're using the policies of L. Ron Hubbard as to how he said to run Scientology organizations, and they're applying it to their own business. Uh, the, the organizing board, the communication system, the dispatch system, the, the way the statistics and using statistics to manage whether areas of your company are producing more the same or less compared to another time period. And normally this is done on a weekly basis and you can also see over time trends and things like that in production. Production goes up, production goes down. You can look at, you know, why did the production go up and down, that kind of thing. Uh, this tends to get very short-sighted, though, very quickly with, you know, week-to-week management of, of employees and situations, which really denies you the bigger, longer-term picture and planning for that longer term because you're so hyper-focused on the one week. Anyway, that's just one of many criticisms of the Hubbard management system. Uh, it's a big, fully realized thing that will run all the different aspects of interdepartment communication and meetings and statistics and, and, like I said, even the organizing board to lay out the very structure of how the employees operate with each other and communicate to each other. So, uh, so it's a pretty complete system. And if you're in an organization using that, you are surrounded by Scientology all day, every day, because that's all right out of Hubbard's works. Uh, when they converted it over to the uh, management system, they just removed references to Scientology-specific stuff. All the rest of it is still exactly the same. So, um, so, and they, and usually using the wise program, the Hubbard management system, as you say, is, a is a front group effort to bring, you know, good repute to Hubbard. And, you know, of course, Scientologists believe this, that this policy is the best possible way to run a company even though Scientology churches are failing miserably all over the world using this system, right? But these companies, these Scientologists have faith in it, and so they think they're going to run their companies this way. And um, that always leads to more Scientology in the area. And the employers watching their non-Scientology employees to see, well, if they bite, if they think this is a good thing, if they think this is something useful and important and where does this come from and who's this L. Ron Hubbard guy you know ah let's let's get this guy into Scientology and they will definitely go for that so you need to be careful Gus because you're in a situation where um where there yeah you are gonna definitely uh be a recruit target um and it's a shame because you said you believe in the purposes of the organization that you're working for. Well, I'm, you know, that's great, but I would get the hell out of there. That's, that's personally, that's what I would do because, um, because the system doesn't work. It's, it is punitive and uh, the discipline that it enforces is uh, not fair or just. It is only from the viewpoint of the organization. Uh, none of Hubbard's policies consider the individual. In fact, if you start thinking about or wanting the employees or your staff 
to uh, get days off, get better, pay, get better pay, get better working conditions. That's called being worker-oriented, quote-unquote, in Scientology. That's a phrase out of Hubbard's policies. Don't be worker-oriented because if you start thinking about the rights of the employees and, you know, and, and how they're doing, you're not thinking about the good of the company. It's a very black-and-white thing in Scientology. Surprise. So, um, so anyway, like I said, I would get the hell out of there if I were you, and that's my answer. Doug, have you ever had the chance to read any of LRH's non-Scientology materials from back when he was still a writer? And if so, what did you think? From what clips you've shown on your shows, he seems to have some good ideas as far as fiction goes, as well as a special talent for world building, but in my mind is in desperate need of an editor. I've given the book Old Doc Methuselah a read, and while I certainly liked it as a pulp sci-fi, I think that Hubbard played a bit fast and loose with his own rules and was no stranger to the occasional deuce ex machina. All right, Doug, thank you. Uh, I've commented on this over the years, uh, you know, that Hubbard's writing is atrocious. I, I can't stand it. The most finished, polished work he has is Battlefield Earth. Um, that's the most readable of his fiction as far as I'm concerned. Um, but his early stuff, his Pulp Fiction stuff is just trash. I really don't like most of it. I, you know, Stephen King had good things to say about fear. Um, I used to think Final Blackout was a really good book as a, as a study on, uh, being on leadership. Of course, now I completely disagree with Hubbard's principles on leadership. I've had, you know, some viewpoint changes, you could say, since I left Scientology. Um, and then, you know, you have stories like Old Doc Methuselah or some of his other series, Typewriter in the Sky, things like that. Uh, some people are fans. I'm not. I, I, I don't like his dialogue. I think it's atrocious. Uh, I think his uh, stories are, you know, somewhat misogynistic in the main, which reflects the times of when he was writing them, I understand. But I still think it's kind of silly. His characters are two-dimensional, really one-dimensional even. Um, they're not, you know, they're not fully realized human beings. They are all caricatures rather than characters. Uh, they don't reflect reality in any significant way. And Hubbard's always sort of, you can always tell he's sort of making himself the hero of his stories. Uh, you know, his heroes are how he sees himself. And, um, you know, his favorite book ever, I think, was 12 Against the Gods, which sort of epitomizes these uh, strong personality stories of people taking on the world and winning or whatever. And Hubbard really saw himself in that mold, even though he was a pansy, you know, wimp who never saw a day of combat and lied constantly, constantly about his own actions and deeds. Because he didn't have heroic deeds to fall back on. He was not a he was not a heroic figure. He was a scumbag, and he was a liar, and he was a serial abuser. Um, I mean, the guy was bad news, but he was uh, very, very delusional in that worldview, and that's what comes across to me in his fiction. I mean, that's what I see now. I can't unsee it. It's kind of one of those things of once you know about the guy and once you see his character and who he really was, and you look at that fiction from that point of view of knowing who he was and what he was about, you can't unsee it. At least I can't. You know, I can't suspend my disbelief any more than I can when I see Tom Cruise on the screen anymore. I, I can't unsee what I see with him. 
you know, other characters, other Scientologists uh, who are actors, character actors is, is what I meant by that. Um, I, I can suspend disbelief to a degree. I can go, okay, I'm watching an actor do a, do a movie role here. Let's see the character. Uh, but I can't do that with Cruz. So, um, yeah, and then, of course, his writing style and his and his structuring of his stories, and it's all so predictable. It's always going to very, very predictable places, um, and he, you know, he doesn't write with anything like reality in mind, um, so that's, yeah, that's my criticism of Hubbard as a writer. Matt B., do you see street epistemology as a substitute for cult exit counseling? Are the two techniques equivalent? I've been thinking about this for some time now. There's obviously some overlap in that both methods involve questions to stimulate critical thinking about fervent belief. But there are some fundamental, if subtle, distinctions. As I understand it, cult exit counseling has a basis in psychotherapy, while street epistemology is more grounded in philosophy. Some cult exit counselors have raised concerns that street epistemology is not therapeutic, especially when applied to a victim of traumatic abuse like most ex-cult members. I'd like to know what you think. Matt, thank you very much for this question. It's a, it's a very good one um, because there is a distinct and, and very important differences between doing cult exit counseling uh, and street epistemology. Uh, for one, I don't know who the um, person you're referring to here when you say some cult exit counselors have raised concerns that street epistemology is not therapeutic in your question, but it's never intended to be. Street epistemology is a method of discourse to gain, gain better understanding between two people or to help somebody gain a better insight or understanding as to where they might have considered or gotten some ideas that they hold dear. And, you know, why do you hold those ideas dear? Where does that idea come from? Have you ever questioned it? What about that idea gives you satisfaction or support or whatever? There's lots of ways and things you could ask in street epistemology that are meant to sort of give a person a little bit more insight into their logic and, and epistemology, their basis for their understanding what they feel they understand. And it's a conversation. It's meant to be friendly. It's meant to be a rational, friendly discourse. It's not meant to be therapeutic in any way. I, I am absolutely positive of that. Um, so, so, so it's different paradigm, really. When you're doing cult exit counseling or you're helping somebody therapeutically recover from a cult, um, you're applying treatment modalities to them as a trained therapist. And this is a licensed activity for a reason because it delves into very sensitive areas for people. And it's a, and it's a, it's a step-by-step process no matter what therapy, you know, modality you're using. Now, if you're talking about a more light grade sort of, um, you know, advice or, you know, consultation like with what I do, where I will work with people who have come out of cult situations or coercive situations. That's educational. That's advice, guidance, direction. It's not therapy. I've stressed that over and over again. In fact, every single time I talk about the kind of uh, consultation work that I do, I say the words, it's not therapy. Um, because it's not. Uh, therapy, again, is, is, inc- is incisive, it's invasive, it's personal, it's sensitive, um, and you got to kind of be trained and know what you're doing. That's the whole reason we have licensing boards and therapists who go to school and do internships and learn what the hell they're doing. 
Um, that's not what I'm doing. When I'm working with somebody, I'm trying to educate them. And education is separate from therapy, although they're very, very, or can be very, very related. Uh, but they're not the same, right? If I have you go read books or read articles or essays or uh, even do writing exercises or something, that's not therapy. And it's not pretending to be, right? So um, so these are these are very different things. And um, you know, so I, so yeah, street epistemology is uh, something that I very much support and very much believe in as a practice because I do believe it's the one way that we can use to better understand one another. See, street epistemology often is positioned as a one-way flow where the the uh, interlocutor, the, the the questioner, the person who's asking the questions is meant to come at this from this position, well, I know there isn't a God, let's say, and I'm going to talk to you, but instead of telling you that or debating with you, I'm going to ask you questions of an incisive nature about where you're feeling or knowing this information is true or correct, and you tell me what you think, right? Like, well, where did you get that idea? Why do you think that's correct? What does that idea do for you? These are good questions to, you know, to dig into why a person has beliefs in almost anything, whether it's God or a culture war value or some social value, you know, because it's just kind of exploratory conversation. But it also helps the questioner as much as it does the person who's asking, who's answering the questions, if they're open to having their own mind, their own minds changed. In the process of doing their questioning, maybe they also can look to themselves and look at what, you know, they believe or think is true and why do they think so. And it can actually become, you know, a two-way conversation, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. That's what we want is good rational discourse. Um. So that's, you know, but, from a, but when you're doing therapy or cult exit counseling... It's not that way. The, the person who's administering the therapy or the counseling is not sitting there have, you know, expecting to have their mind changed about the cult. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do work with somebody and a therapist isn't going to do work with somebody who comes out of Scientology, listen to what they have to say about Scientology and go, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> oh, I think Hubbard had it right about that. You know, like I'm not, that's not the point or the purpose of the activity at all. Um, so there's another distinction between those two practices. Uh, and I've had conversations with Anthony Magnabasco on my podcast a few times about street epistemology. I really highly recommend, if you haven't seen those, that you check them out so that it's clear what the differences and similarities are between these things. And uh, that's my flash, you know, kind of off the top of my head answer to your question, Matt. But it's a great question. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. SS. I wanted to see if you have any knowledge of the line charge phenomenon that can happen in auditing. I remember when I was about 12, my dad was getting auditing at Flag and was so blown out that he was unable to stop laughing for days. At the time, my mom said it was normal, but I felt a little freaked out that my dad was having a phone conversation with me and yet he couldn't stop laughing for more than a few seconds at a time. And now I think my reaction was more appropriate than I realized at the time. I was wondering what was the actual psychological phenomena behind someone laughing like that. 
All right. Thank you for asking me this. And we're going to dive a little bit into the topic of gelatology. Uh, that is the study of laughter. And, uh, and it's actually a thing. Uh, gelatology, study of laughter and its effects on the body from a psychological and physiological perspective. Uh, so let's cover a couple things real fast, just in terms of general ideas about laughter and psychology right now. Uh, laughter is a great form of stress relief. And that's no joke. Uh, there could be short, okay, some short-term benefits from a good laugh include uh, stimulating many organs, uh, enhances your intake of oxygen-rich air, stimulates your heart, lungs, and muscles, and increases the endorphins that are released by your brain. Active and re- they can uh, activate and relieve your stress response. A rollicking laugh fires up and then cools down your stress response. And can increase and decrease your heart rate, so you get a good relaxed feeling, and it can soothe tension. Long term, it is actually good for your immune system uh, to be laughing, uh, you know, here and there, every now and again. Laughter is the best medicine, as they say. It's actually, um, it releases neuropeptides that that help fight stress and potentially more serious illness. It can relieve pain by releasing um, natural painkillers within your body. It can increase personal satisfaction and connection with other people. And, of course, it can improve our mood. Um, There are lots and lots of good reasons why laughing is a good idea. Um, Now, the other thing about laughter, though, is while it does indicate stress relief or relief from anxiety or tension, sometimes there are other reasons people laugh uh, after getting hurt, after others get hurt, sometimes during nervousness or uncomfort, discomfort, a person will laugh. Uh, Sometimes people laugh when they get mad. And then um, there is this bit I'll read here from in more detail about how sometimes people can laugh for no reason whatsoever. Um, This uh, can be disturbing to people when they are just suddenly laughing out of nowhere. Um, This type of laughter may be due to what's called pseudobulbar effect, PBA, which describes laughter outbursts unrelated to an individual's emotional state. A pseudobulbar effect is related to a neurological condition that results in a person showing emotions in inappropriate or exaggerated ways, such as hysterical laughter or crying. And maybe some of this was demonstrated in that movie Joker uh, with Joaquin Phoenix, where he would just laugh, uh, you know, inappropriately. Uh, This has sometimes been confused with depression, bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia. It is a treatable condition. Um, then there is laughing as a sign of a disorder. Uh, like pseudobulbar effect, other disorders can sometimes manifest as inappropriate laughter. Paradoxical laughter occurs for no reason as related to an individual's mental state, as I think is probably the closest thing we've seen so far to describing what you ran into with your father. A person experiencing unstable moods, schizophrenia, or other mental illness may display paradoxical laughter. And I am in no way saying that your father is mentally ill here. I am just reading what it says in that unstable moods might be a reason for paradoxical laughter of that kind. Um, It could be a thyroid problem. could be something called Graves' disease. Uh, which involves uh, hormone production. I mean, this is this is kind of how that sort of thing goes. But in Scientology, you referenced line charts. So let's go ahead and talk about that for a second because it is a phenomenon that occurs from time to time. 
line charge in Scientology is the term that's used for when somebody enters into uncontrollable laughter as a result of an auditing action. Um, they just enter this sort of gleeful ah, ha, 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 sort of state and they just can't stop laughing. And this could very well indicate a release or a catharsis of anxiety or stress. Okay, it very well could. We talk about the fact that Scientology auditing induces blissful euphoric states by design. So could you have such a thing um, go, you know, where to the, to the point where a person actually does experience relief? Of course. And could that relief manifest in, you know, days or uh, maybe minutes is how it usually goes, by the way, is just minutes. Uh, not hours or days, but I have heard stories, and your question is, of course, like that, where a person will just be laughing for days and days. Um, not necessarily straight, you know, like like just nonstop laughter, but they'll break out in the laughter often. You know, um, certainly I experienced phenomena like that for brief periods of time following an auditing session. I think it happened maybe once or twice in 27 years. So it wasn't a common thing, but, um, but it could be, you know, just a relief, you know, ah, wow. And that's kind of, and now it's funny to you because it was so stressful, such a source of worry or upset or concern for so long. And then a person has a realization, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. Oh, I can let it go. Oh, wow. That was not at all as serious as I thought it was. Ah, ha, 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 right? And there's, and that's perfectly legit. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But where it goes on for days and you can't even talk to the person because they won't stop, that's where I think we're entering into the pseudo-bulbar effect and maybe something a little bit more serious going on that maybe, you know, uh, could indicate something bad. And in the world of Scientology, of course, we always have to account for the fact that things are almost always worse than you think they are. That is a truism in Scientology I've found over and over again. So while I'm trying to offer some more rational or some some alternative explanations for why that behavior might have happened with your father or why that might happen in Scientology, you know, it, it's it's probable that it's something more disorderly. And so that's why I wanted to read from that. You know, laughter, um, yeah, it can be fun at times, it can be healing, but if it's inappropriate or unhealthy, uh, you know, it is something that you might want to look more seriously into. And there you go. Paul, I wanted to ask you a question about the OT levels. Given LRH's obsession with the number eight, the infinity symbol as a sideways eight, and the lack of materials for levels above OT8, would any Scientologist make a connection that OT8 should be the final and ultimate OT level, and therefore there should not be any levels above it? Probably not, given the fact that for decades now there has been a grade chart that shows levels all the way up to OT15. Why they did that, I have no idea. Perhaps there is some L. Ron Hubbard issue somewhere or some uh, bulletin somewhere, some notes that he made somewhere that indicate that there are 15 OT levels planned or in his mind or somehow that's how many there should be. But for whatever reason, however it happened, whether Hubbard said it or not, 
ever since the 1980s, there has been an idea that there are 15 OT levels. So to renege on that at this point would be somewhat suicidal for David Miscavige. Um, because everybody now knows that OT8 is not the end of the line. In fact, that has always been promoted as the first true OT level, but not the last one. It's the first one where you start gaining native state powerful abilities back. Uh, you know, whereas all the earlier levels, all the way up through OT7, are negative case gain. They are levels that are taking trauma and stress and charge away from you or you're exorcising your body thetans and you, so you're removing things from you. And OT8 is supposed to be the first level where you're gaining spiritual abilities back. So it's so that milk's already been spilt, so to speak, right? That cat's already out of the bag. There's no going back on it. It very well could have been back in the 80s that Miscavige or whoever could have capped it at OT8 said yep it's uh, infinity on its side that's absolutely OT8 it is the top level there is no more but that would have capped Scientology and then people would have been done and the whole point of the con of Scientology is for there never to be an end ever and that's something people, you know, we don't really talk about much, but maybe some should be considered a little bit more, is it's the, it's the nature of the con of Scientology that there is always more. More to pay for, more to do, more to involve yourself in. That's why the, all the control structures and everything are built to keep you in. You never get out, right? Once you get in, you never get out. That's kind of Scientology at its heart as far as the nature or the sort of the framework of the con. So, um, so that's another reason why Miscavige and anybody else who takes over Scientology can never let this kind of thinking, as you've asked in your question here, that they just can't let that kind of thinking uh, go on in Scientology. So, um, so that's why, no, that would never, that's just, nope, no Scientologist is going to ever be allowed to really go there. There you go. All right, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching and listening if you've invited me into your home through uh, my audio podcast. I hope these answers were informative, educational, and entertaining as always. And I uh, look forward to my show with Tony Ortega tomorrow after Scientology, straight up in vertical, and uh, the rest of the lineup. I will talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye.